Hey, I'm Will LaVise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuned in to LaVise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. Today's show, hate crimes in America. The recent spike in hate crimes against Asians in America has heightened the tension of America's history of hate crimes in general. It's not clear yet whether the recent killings in Atlanta is also a hate crime, but it's hard to ignore that six out of the eight victims that were gunned down were Asian women. So, Claville, this is like an ongoing thing. I mean, for us as black men in America, this is just an ongoing thing that has happened. I mean, in terms of the history of the country and hate crimes in general, it's sad to say that this is like nothing new to us, or even to hear that this is a possibility that this recent shooting was, you know, racially motivated, you know, it's not shocking, but it's, it's disturbing. It's not shocking. You know, at some point, Will, or first of all, our hearts and our prayers and condolences go out to all the families that lost their lives. Absolutely. And, uh, in, in, you know, this senseless massacre uh, and all individuals that have lost their lives in similar situations. No. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, is this who we are as Americans? You mentioned that we as African-Americans, black males, uh, have experienced hate crimes uh, pretty much since we've actually been in America. Public Uh, enemy number one. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, We we can go all the way back to uh, just most, uh, well, in in history, we can look at lynchings. Uh, Most of the lynchings that took place uh, are African-American or black males uh, because, quote unquote, uh, they either got out of line or they could be lynched. And one of the major reasons uh, that that were, was used is that a black man always assaulted or raped a white woman, right? Which right. was right. right. You know, and even if you go back all the way to the Scottsboro Boys, uh, that famous case where 19 black uh, males, teenagers, some teenagers, some young adults uh, were basically riding a train. And uh, a woman made up a story that uh, she was assaulted or raped by these men, which, of course, we found not to be true. Uh, but these individuals, this case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And right. these individuals could have been put in jail for life and also executed at that time period. Uh, but as far as hate crimes on the street goes, um, as I mentioned, lynchings. Uh, matter of fact, I know the NAACP used to uh, hold out signs, you know, and change the banner saying another black man was lynched. Right. Uh, a black person was lynched in the South or wherever the case may be. But we also can't forget that black women were also lynched sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and violated. And oftentimes, I mean, it had this sort of sexual nature to it, the way uh, people's genitals were cut off, genitalia was attacked, all of that, which, you know, ties in in a lot of ways to this Atlanta situation, because it, at at this point, of a story that is continuing to move, you know, and develop. We're hearing this this sexual overtone here in it. And all of this ties into, you know, very much, like you said, about the history of all types of different people of color who have been violated, you know, from the indigenous people to Asians, you know, coming from China on the West Coast to, to you know, to the Mexican population, which is actually was here first and actually in many ways is the first, um, you know, uh, Americans in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. in, in, when you know the history of Arizona and those states in Colorado and California and Texas. So there's, there's this undertone to this, you know, s- sexual undertone that ties into it. 
as well as, um, you know, just interesting that now in this time with this happening with um, the uptick yeah. in Asian Americans, you're seeing the difference of there was a time when it was just, you know, either indigenous people or it was black. But now we're seeing and unearthing how various groups that are not white have been victimized and subjected right. to hate. And it's kind of creating an environment where, you know, the country is looking at this and dealing with this in a way unlike it has been before. And some are saying it may actually be bringing about a, a, a sense of unity among people of color in a fight against what is really at the core issue, white supremacy. You know, it's, it's, it's funny that you mention that because um, a lot of times when we talk about hate crimes, it's usually black and white, right? Uh, but in the, what I call the micro minority groups in America, uh, your East Indians, your uh, Afro Hispanics, uh, those who are lighter shade uh, and, and the like, and also your Asian Americans, right? They tend to be in that middle. So you take a gun can go either way. And the reason why I call them micro minorities is because they, they're, they're here, but the communities are very small and very insulated and isolated from the larger America in a lot of ways. But as it relates to Asian Americans, we've seen an uptick. Now, Asian Americans have always uh, received some type of discriminatory uh, uh, reaction from... Right. I mean, they have a long history, you know, they have a long <laughs> history in the country. You know? Absolutely. Because it's not like these folks are, are, are new to the country. They've been very much a fabric and helped build the country as well. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when you talk about building the country, uh, we can look all the way back to the railroad. You know, the railroad that stretched from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast, more specifically the West Coast. There's a great documentary you can see, historical documentary that talks about, you know, the Chinese and the work that they put in to build uh, that railroad. You know, uh, detonating uh, uh, mountains and going through and tunneling and, and the like. And the interesting thing about it is that when the railroad was finished, connecting the East to the West, uh, the people that worked on the railroad to build to build it were not allowed to have those jobs. Those jobs went to quote unquote uh, good white male. White sounds white familiar, doesn't it? Sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds familiar, you know. So, so they would see that type of discrimination. Also, we can't forget, you know, during the World War, when Japanese Americans internment camps, right? Immediately put into internment camps, taken out of their homes, given only a small time to get a suitcase and their belongings, and then put in internment camps. Now. They did receive some type of reparation for it, $50,000 for families uh, that were impacted. But at the same time, you can't get back your dignity, right, as it relates to that incident. A lot of people were uprooted and they had to, quote unquote, show that they love America, the country. Right. So a lot of their sons and some of the daughters actually enlisted in the military and carried their lives for the country to show that they were, quote unquote, American, that they love the country. So but, then you, but I, then you notice, but then you notice that there were no internment camps for German Americans. And it was the United States was clearly, clearly in World War II. Germany was the dominant uh, foe in, yeah. in, in terms of um, the war that was going on against the, uh, you know, against the confronting powers. But yet here there were no internment camps for Germans. And so it, it begs to differ, it begs to get you to wonder, well, what is the common thread here? And that is that you're talking about white supremacy. You're talking about the wild white brothers and sisters being treated very differently 
from those who are people of color. And that's at the core of this white supremacy. You know, Will, you bring up a, a salient point, and I think that's the linchpin to it all. As a matter of fact, we can fast forward and look at the last four years um, uh, under President, former President Trump's administration. And we saw an uptick in two types of uh, violent threats and discrimination of, t- of various groups. One, uh, Native uh, Asian Americans with COVID-19 uh, right. was last, but the very first was dealing with immigration and his uh, uh, Mexican Americans, more specifically. Uh, and also, there was also talk about um, Black nations, right? So, you know, we'll talk about immigration later. Uh, but, you know, we saw that the common thread with all of these issues were that Black people were being discriminated against and threatened and also uh, uh, given uh, p- basically a, a bullhorn for those who believe in white supremacy to have a field day, you know, on, on, at the expense of, quote unquote, non-whites. Uh, as a matter of fact, the president even say, former president say that he likes more people from, you know, one of the Scandinavian countries. Right, Scandinavian. <laughs> you know, we should open up our borders. You know, people from Sweden and Finland and Norway and places like that. Well, that those places have something in common, you know, and that is that they are uh, European nations, more, more specifically white nations, uh, that uh, that those individuals uh, have a population of. And so he was showing his bias. He was showing his discrimination. He was showing his racism just with that one statement. And then also the disparaging statements about certain African countries, <laughs> you know, being, being S-hole, S-hole country. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so unfortunately, that was the mindset of our former president. That was the mindset of right. persons that he brought into his administration in order to create immigration policies and other policies affecting uh, non-white communities. And that was the, and again, it gave a bullhorn, it gave a bully pulpit, and it gave an okay to those individuals that believe in the principles of white supremacy to come out and abuse, misuse, disparage, threaten, and even kill non-whites. You know? and, the, and the thing is, is that as you talk about the former president, what he was doing and what he recognized and knew he was doing was using an age-old tool that has been here since the very beginning, the very founding of the nation. And that is to use race as a way to wedge uh, people and to create a situation where people will not look to come together. So racism and white supremacy is really about a tool of a certain white elite class to keep everybody else distracted and under control and not right. sharing, you know, in the in the full opportunity to get to live life, have liberty, pursue happiness. So, again, in the founding of the nation, how was it initially set up that, you know, citizenship would go towards whites, voting rights and so forth would go towards landowners, you know, those who had had um, wealth. I mean, it was structured in a way so that, look, we'll use white supremacy as a way to build and to be able to distract folk. And based on class from being able to get at this wealth. And so we see this thread starting at the very beginning. We see it existing now when the president is making certain dog whistle claims. So so there was a time in this country where you could be more blatant about it. 
We had more outward, we had more legal segregation and legal white supremacy and racism. Now it's in the form of dog whistling, talking about right. those people or this group over here, or you know, you know, they're taking your jobs away. And so what what is it helps you to start to understand is that white supremacy is really a tool about class warfare in a lot of ways. Is that's what is really is going on. And so those who have made moves to try to get groups to unify, whether it is through the labor movement, or whether to seek these common things that we have in common, common concerns, common battles that we have, um, when you rise up against white supremacy, the system automatically reacts in such a way to be able to maintain that status quo, which is a lot of ways is about class and, and economics. Right. And, and Will, you're exactly right. We can go all the way back uh, to the Poor People's Campaign, you know, the Poor People's Movement, where, where Fred Hampton unified, you know, uh, Southern whites, poor whites. And there was a movement that was galvanizing individuals, whether you were white, black un, or, or other, uh, under the umbrella of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And they realized that, listen, we have more in common <laughs> than we have than, than we have uh, uh, none, not in common with each other. But and, we all having trouble feeding our children and and, <laughs> and, getting our, and being able to go to the doctor and the dentist and get our teeth fixed. So yeah. why, why are we fighting each other? Right. Exactly. So they said, listen, if we can come together and galvanize around these economic issues, mm-hmm. economic and education, you know, those are, you know, you know, you know, those are my. Uh, soapboxes. You know, those are the things that I uh, advocate for of any community, education and economic upper mobility. I believe that that is within itself uh, the, 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 the thread that, that brings all opportunities and communities together uh, to build strong communities, strong families, and also lead generational wealth. Uh, so, but you're right. You know, there are those who control our country uh, that don't want to see those factions come together. Uh, so as you mentioned, the last president utilizing that uh, that tool effectively in order to continue to divide our people, uh, the peoples of this country, to say, hey, you know, you know, watch them. You know, they're going to come take your job. And really, your job is not a Fortune 500 job, right? right. <laughs> it's a job you can literally find somewhere else because a lot of these jobs are blue-collar jobs or or minimal wage jobs. And the real enemy, you know, I'll say that the real enemy uh, is big business, you know, to all these jobs. I mean, we've talked about it before on other shows where jobs are taken and they go overseas and they blame not the CEOs and the board that approved that that move in order to make them more money. And they're they, making big profits and getting huge salaries, salaries doubling and tripling. Yeah, man, millions of dollars, million dollars. I mean, of course, we know now about the phrase golden parachutes, but the general public didn't know what golden parachutes were. And these are CEOs and officers of companies that come in and and make the board and shareholders, well, actually the shareholders, as much money as possible. And when they retire, they get what's called a golden parachute. And that that is worth hundreds, millions, and in some cases, uh, for Fortune 500 companies, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, so... So again, there's an there's a selfish incentive there, but mm-hmm. what happens is when those jobs are lost, they don't blame those individuals; they blame the black and the brown people, right? right. Saying, "Oh, right. look, they're taking your job," and those people had absolutely nothing to do 
you know, with taking their job. So you start to galvanize. This is a tool that also helps to create, quote unquote, a, a, a hate uh, dialogue about these people. And we mentioned the Asian Americans again and the unfortunate incident that recently happened. But again, I want to go to COVID-19 and how the former president uh, started really the, 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 the discrimination and threats that in the uptick since 20, 2019, 2020, really. Yeah, the Kung it. flu, the China flu, you know, yeah, China they, flu, they Kung- brought it here. Uh, it was them. It was they who did it. It's those people. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and keep in mind, Asian Americans, of course, there's going to be a certain level of discrimination. We talked about it before against all non-white groups. But what happened was Asian Americans really were not a target of any major policy until that statement was made. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't any target of any uh, immigration policy, public policy that cut off opportunities or, or to raise, quote unquote, uh, uh, an alarm against the Asian American community. Because for the most part, Asian Americans also suffer from quote unquote, the model immigrant. These, this is what all non-white people should be like. And a lot of that is also based on uh, uh, discriminatory tropes of being subservient and right. also being able to uh, work hard for whatever pay, you know, <laughs> that you give them and for innovation and so forth. And right, you're supposed that. to be the more the more appealing alternative to, to the black population because black folk are public enemy number one. That's the polar opposite that, yeah. you know, we are against and you don't want to be like, so you play all these groups against each other with these different stereotypes and tropes and get it and create an environment where if you're a white person and you're having difficulty in your life economically or whatever the case is, you're encouraged to not look at yourself or yeah. look at the system in general and how it's impacting you, but you're encouraged to blame, no, it's those folks. It's this folk over there, because if you looked at the system in general and how we fail to have proper safety nets for people, then you will begin to see where the real corporate culprits are, which, as you said, is in the corporate American and corporate system, which is very much still based on the indentured servant slave system. Keep wages down. Right. So you can maximize uh, profits. You know, don't. Don't get into sharing and creating an opportunity where people can be empowered to build wealth for themselves. Don't give everybody a, a, a large share of the pot, which would seem to me that actually the more assets that people have, the more they can put into the economy, the better off we all are. So that's where you hear these these calls against um, minimum wage. You know, you know, we want to fight against you know, people being able to make $15 an hour to have a living wage because we want to keep our wages low, depress people so we can maximize the profits and keep the status quo the way that it is. So you use and you inject white supremacy and hatred into this to keep people distracted from seeing what is really going on. So how does this start playing out? It starts playing out and you're saying, well, it's not my problem. It's not me that's causing this difficulty. It's them. It plays out with the language, like you said, language that's degrading, that dehumanizes people. Because it's easier to hate somebody. It's easier to gun somebody down if you're not even seeing them as being a fellow human being. You're seeing them as being an animal. You're seeing them as being less than. So we get fed all of these things. And in this system that we live, 
you know, for for the for the white person, it becomes so much a part of your DNA yes. and your your psyche that you don't even recognize that some of these things are going on. You become a blind spot to 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 the fact that uh you've got an over over uh emphasis on your superiority to others that's based on nothing in science, based on nothing factual yeah. other than you know this 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 social construct that we put together to keep people in certain orders. Yeah. And, and Will, you hit the nail on the head. It's not based in science, uh, but it's simply based on discriminatory public policy. That's mm-hmm. all it's based on. If you're used to seeing a certain group of people at the table making decisions and in certain universities, not because, quote unquote, you're the only person that can earn that opportunity, but other individuals are kept away from even being able to participate in those opportunities, then there you have it. I remember doing some research on various black codes and, and uh, slave codes. And one of the black codes that I found in Maryland, um, and again, these are all former slaveholding states uh, that actually, uh, during the time after slavery, simply converted the policies that they created to govern their slaves into, quote unquote, public policy uh, to govern uh, uh, black people at that time period, during Jim Crow. But anyway, one of the uh, codes talked about African-Americans are slaves, with Black people not being able to participate in education or business or real estate, but in sports and entertainment, sports and entertainment, you know, so they recognize the ability of of Black people's uh, natural ability uh, to participate in these areas of entertainment and sports at an early, early time. And we see it even now, you know, happening. You know, most of your a lot of African-Americans who became successful in business or, or the like, you see they got their start in their entertainment. And it's not because that's the only thing that they could do, but again, that's what they were allowed to participate in. So again, going back to the Asian-American and the policy, I mean, the, uh, the disparaging dialogue about Asian-Americans and COVID-19, it wasn't, you know, we know it wasn't China that brought it over here, but it was rather the White House that ignored what was happening in China and right. decided to sit on their hands, ignore it, but privately behind closed doors. You know, you had others of the administration and Congress that were saying, this is a serious problem. But we know that our former president would make statements saying, oh, there's nothing there. It's, it'll go away. You know, <laughs> you know, and I think about various movies, uh, uh, theatrical depictions of this type of thing that could happen, that could shut down the world. And I think about outbreak, you know, right. that we, uh, and how I was saying, well, well, clearly, you know, we have mechanisms in place, you know, to keep these things at bay. Very similar to what the Obama administration did with uh, H1N1, you know, when it came, it came to our borders, but we stopped it there from coming inside because we, we created policies. We created an office of, of infectious disease in order to handle this call immediately, right? But unfortunately, it happened not because of China, but it happened because of the former White House's ineptness to react effectively and efficiently and really honestly about this threat of virus that came uh, to our shores. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the state of Maryland when you talk about public policy and how it supports, you know, white supremacy, because it's actually in Maryland that we have the first law that really established the differences between between how the races will be 
you know, treated. And you have, you know, a case of uh, John Punch and people should look this up. And it really goes into, you know, the importance of understanding the racial history of this country and how we can actually get to dismantling racism. But John Punch, you know, was a slave who with um, other, you know, slaves and indentured servants, right, two white ones ran away, right? They were caught and their penalties were very different. The two white ones, their penalties was extension on their servitude. But Punch's penalty was lifetime of servitude as a, as a black man. And so you have in that case, the first establishment of law solidifying, as you talked about public policy and law, the impact that it has on how we, how we interact and what happens with us as a society. That's the first instance. And then it continues on from there. And so these are the things that we have to understand it. Once, once it gets put into law and it gets put into practice, then this is where we find ourselves. And so Absolutely. when people talk about things, well, that was way back then, and that was then, and that doesn't matter. No, no, that, no. that set the standard, that set the, the whole situation in motion. So what it begs the different way it brings us is that there is a way to unravel this. If you if there was a way to put it in motion and to establish it, there's also a way to dismantle it. So I think, you know, as we think about what should black people do and what can we do as a society to start to address hate crimes and eliminate this scourge from our society is we need to have anti-racism education as mandatory throughout our public school systems and throughout our institutions that are the key institutions that form the way that we think. So as people are coming through this public school system, there needs to be not, and I'm not just talking about diversity training, right. where you're kind of learning certain things and people are blowing it off and they're one-offs. But this, I'm talking about a deep dive into the yeah. racial history of our country and unraveling and uncovering and undoing these lies and taking people through a process. There are a lot of groups out there that are in, that are actually engaged in doing this kind of work and working with companies, working with organizations, working with school systems. I believe that that's one key thing that needs to be a mandatory thing in our school systems and in our society if we're going to be serious about getting to a society where we truly have an opportunity to be equal and to pursue happiness. Well, you bring up a... a, a, a I believe it, which is the solution to this problem. And, but I believe that it is one that our country, and I'm, I'm the, probably the most optimistic person you'll ever meet, but I'm also the most realistic person you ever meet, which means I'm realistic about my optimism. <laughs> and, and then simply saying that, that is, yes, education is the key, but education is two-pronged. Two First, you have to have someone who is able to deliver the truth. And you have to have someone who is humble enough to accept the truth. That's education, right? Taking this very complex history and, and or concept and breaking it down to a point to where a child can understand it. But you have right. to be like a child to, to, to actually receive it. Right. The problem with understanding the history of America and really teaching it, the truth of it is that it brings embarrassment and shame mm -hmm. 
upon white America, and it pulls the cover off of the fallacy of that which is white supremacy. I've discussed this in, in many settings with various groups and various individuals that really want to deal with this. But when right. I start to talk about the truth of America, which is simply just simply repeating history, reading history, what took place, and understanding the power of law and public policy and how it dictates our going and our coming, they then to begin to shy away. Or, and, and very few, if any, I've, I've come in contact with, have accepted it and also looked at it and said, we need to move forward with this. It's something to grow up and being lied to all your life. Hmm. You know, it's something to, to hear that what you have believed all your life has been nothing more than a lie. And it has, at the expense of others, it has caused pain, it has caused death, it has caused turmoil in those individuals' lives. Right. Well, it creates cognitive dissonance. And, and like you said, it's hard to struggle with that and to wrestle with that, that all that you have believed has been foundational to your identity is a lie. And so a lot of people do not want to delve into that space because to go into that space really causes them to have to really self-reflect and deal with Absolutely. themselves and look at who they truly are in the society. And that's why I think it's important that it's got to be something that's got to be a deep dive. It's got to be integrated into our education systems, into our religious institutions. You know, these institutions that are the ones that kind of help form our minds and, and how we think, you know, you, you can't just go into somebody's family and enforce on them how they how they're going to raise their kids. But in the public education system, you certainly can. And in our public policy system, you certainly can mandate that. Look, as a in the best interest of the commonwealth of all people, we got to, we got to make this deep dive, and we got to have real, serious, measurable goals. Yeah, and 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 again, I agree with you, and it, I, it reminds me of a story uh, of talking with an interpreter of history at one of the colonial uh, uh, places here in the colonial tri historical triangle, and how they mentioned when they would take individuals on tour of various plantations, mm -hmm. uh, they would not. The, the whites in the groups don't want to go by the slave uh, house. Right. Right. So they started incorporating that as being the first place they start as mm. they to quote unquote, the big house, because there's, there's two sides to the story. Every time I look at colonial history in his majesty, I always think what, who, what's the story of the people that actually created that image of, right. of, of, of majesty and greatness. Who are those individuals that built those houses? Who are the individuals right. that cultivated those crops? What were their lives like? And what happened, not just in the daytime, but what happened in the nighttime when mm. they were asleep? So, right. you know, these are the true stories that we have to tell. These are the true stories that we have to um, understand. And it takes humility, it takes honesty, and it takes a true desire for our country to really come to grips with how we were created. Yes, democracy is, in America, is the greatest experiment in creating a utopia where all cultures can come together and work together and achieve, quote unquote, the American dream. But there is a nightmare that exists and carnage in helping to create this. And we have to tell that story, and that's the only way we can move forward, that's the only way we can heal. And that's the only way that we, as not only African-Americans, Asian-Americans, 
Hispanic Americans, and all other non-white groups who came to this country and built this country can receive the due justice and also the recognition of our contributions to society. Again, so, so it should be like that, but that's not the way it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not so, the way. <laughs> so, so what should so what should black people do to push this issue to get on board against hate crimes? You know, I, I think one of the things that we as a people should do is recognize this moment in history where we're at, that the country has evolved and become more cult- multicultural in terms of different groups of people. Yes, uh, indigenous people of this, of this this land and African-Americans were the first two, and as, as well as um, uh, uh, Mexicans who out in the West, particularly through the wars between the U.S. and Mexico, uh, were the ones who sacrificed and took the, the first blows of white supremacy in this nation. But we've also evolved that there's, there are several other groups of people. And I think that we together, because one of my concerns is that, you know, anti-Black behavior also exists in, in these other groups as well. Yes. Let's not get it twisted. Black Lives Matter is a global movement for a reason because black people's uh, people with our skin color are catching it from all types of different groups, not just, you know, uh, Caucasians from Europe. Also but in Mexico as well. That's right. Absolutely. You talked about this several times that there's more black people down in South America than in North America. So, yeah. you know, what, what we're, but we potentially are in a point where maybe we will all start looking at these this racism within these groups and start to see the commonalities and to can begin to unite around this common enemy of white supremacy, which, by the way, doesn't serve whites well either. As we talked about the, the class differences, economically, right. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't serve a lot of whites well either. So what would serve this country well is a country where all of the people truly have an opportunity, equal opportunity to pursue happiness and to build wealth and to contribute to the economy. And so I think we had this opportunity to unify and to really come together against that common common enemy. And I, I hope that this is something that we can do. And I think that's a great way to end this segment. Uh, I echo those sentiments as well, and hopefully we can build up on it to make a better, better America. But thank you so much for joining us for this segment of LaVisa and Claville. Again, as we talk about very important issues that impact our society today. Catch us in past episodes, this episode on our social media, Facebook page, Instagram, and also Twitter. And for those of you that may have any questions, please email us at lavisancleville at gmail.com. And until next time, that's the way it is. We'll see you. Be well. <laughs>